Mysteries of ages past, unenlightened shadows cast down through all eternity. The crying of humanity. Tis then when the hurdy gurdy man comes singing songs of love. Then when the hurdy gurdy man comes singing songs of love. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Ghost Stories for the End of the World. We are back. We had to put the show on hiatus for a little while due to personal circumstances. And of course, we're now in the middle of a pandemic, so that threw a wrench or two into my plans but one thing in particular that made me unsure of whether I should continue doing this for the time being is the fact that Italy has been hit so fucking hard by this virus and believe me when I say that I really do love Italy it's one of my favorite places in the whole world and I didn't want you to think that I'm trying to stick the boot into the country when it's already on its knees it has really hurt a lot to see the news coming out of there over the last few months And I'm sure you're probably sick of the million and one COVID-19 special episodes of other podcasts that are already out there. So we won't dwell on the plague (laughs) um, for too long. Um, But suffice to say that I hope you are taking care of yourself and your friends and family and just look after yourselves. One last bit of housekeeping is I think releasing the pod in batches of four or five episodes every so often is probably the way to go. Uh, quality control is better and I don't spend as much time fighting with my broadband and audacity, which really helps with my zen. So consider this the first episode of the new quartet where we are going to be focusing on Italy. We'll be starting out with a look at the years of lead and Aldo Moro and the Red Brigades. And then we'll be going deep on the three main mafia organizations before segueing to P2 and the Vatican Bank and then wrapping things up with a deep dive into heroin trafficking and the resultant second mafia war of the 1970s and early 80s. So with all that out of the way and while reality is warping in the world outside, what better way? to pass the time than by cracking open a beer and sharing a ghost story or two. And this one gets very insane very quickly. On February the 11th of this year, prosecutors in Bologna formally concluded that Licio Gelli was one of the main co-conspirators in the 1980 Bologna train station bombing. And this has been something of an open secret for a long, long time in Italy. But a formal recognition means a lot to the victims' loved ones and the survivors. This bombing is the one that killed 85 people and left hundreds more injured. And Jelly and his boys commissioned some psychos from the far-right armed revolutionary nuclei to plant the bomb as part of the strategy of tension that we discussed a little bit last episode and that we'll be going deeper on today. Now, Jelly was a businessman and financier who joined the Black Shirt Volunteers during the Spanish Civil War, and he was intimately involved in the overlapping worlds of organized crime and the fascist underground all through his life. He played a role in the formation of the P2 Masonic Lodge, 
Now, some people say he was the founder and other people say that he was just a crook who inflated his importance to the group for personal gain. But he was intimately involved in the affairs of Banco Ambrosiano, eventually disappearing in 1998 just before he could be arrested for his part in the bank's collapse. And two years prior to this, in 96, he'd been a candidate for a Nobel Prize in Literature and another Vatican connection pops up here in the form of one of his sponsors for the award, Mother Teresa. Naturally, there are also plenty of mafia connections, and he's one of the chief suspects in ordering the murder of the so-called God's banker, uh, Roberto Calvi. So we'll get much deeper into all of this when we actually cover Banco Ambrosiano and P2 in a, another episode to come, although it is really tempting to get into the weeds with it all right now. But the reason I bring up that news article is because the Bologna train station bombing was a crucial event during Italy's years of lead. Over a period of about 15 to 20 years between the late 60s and the late 80s, Italy saw 491 people murdered, another 5,000 injured and 14,591 individual terrorist attacks committed as part of a ferocious wave of political violence where the right, the left, mafia groups, foreign intelligence agencies and the Italian state fought for influence over the political direction of the country. As we are going to see, it is a bewildering, vexing period of European history with mysteries piling on top of mysteries, conspiracies on top of um, conspiracies, a rabbit warren basically full of looking glasses. And so much of what happened is still a puzzle, even to academics and researchers who spent their entire lives studying it. So I hope you will forgive that this episode will only be able to barely scratch the surface of it all. You see a lot of people these days talking and only semi-jokingly about how it seems like we're living in a glitching simulation or a fever dream. And that is to say that the world right now appears very surreal and unnerving. But when you read about the years of lead, you're reminded very quickly that the world has always been this insane and that as strange and disturbing as the moment we're living through can often feel, it's probably nothing particularly new or unique to anybody who was alive in Italy during the years of lead. Italy underwent what came to be called the economic miracle, which was a time of amazing growth where the national GDP doubled and a mostly rural society suddenly found itself at the center of rapid industrial expansion. And we're talking a 9 million people over a period of 20 years or so between the early 50s and the early 70s, moving from the mostly impoverished southern part of the country up to cities in the north like Turin and Milan. And just because the war had ended and pro-labor, even pro-communist sentiment was very high, that didn't mean that the fascists were totally defeated. In fact, many of them found it relatively easy to integrate into the new republic. 
and many of the more influential ones maintained very useful connections in the fascist paramilitary underground. Now, Italy's politics were always murky, but in the atmosphere of the 60s, the intrigue and conspiracy began to reach a fever pitch. And while people in power schemed and cut dozens of dirty deals to take advantage of the economic miracle, the Sicilian mafia-led sack of Palermo is a notorious example. Italian trade unionists and the radical student movement combined to incredible effect, staging waves of wildcat strikes and mass walkouts, demanding better pay and working conditions for a newly radicalized urban working class. This was the so-called hot autumn that began in 1969 and tailed off around the early 70s. Now bear in mind that these guys weren't just going up against a few bored middle managers and cops. They were also squaring off against Italy's mafia groups and far-right paramilitary squads. So roughly speaking, we can say the years of lead began with the hot autumn and the first killing of a cop during this period in November of 1969. This was overshadowed a month later when a bomb exploded at the National Agricultural Bank in Piazza Fontana in Milan. And more bombs went off in Rome and elsewhere in Milan the same day. Now, 17 people died in the Piazza Fontana bombing and the aftermath set the general tone for the period ahead. The police pinned the bombing on the radical left and a railway worker, an anarchist called Giuseppe Pinelli, was arrested shortly afterwards. He then mysteriously fell to his death from an open window on the fourth floor of the police station where he was being detained. The cops said it was a suicide, but their report was littered with holes and inconsistencies. Pinelli's comrades said that it was murder. A couple of years later, in 1974, the cop who was directly accused of throwing Pinelli out of the window was executed by a radical left-wing cell. And eventually, as I think we mentioned last episode, the Piazza Fontana bombing turned out to most likely have been the work of two neo-fascists, Franco Freda and Giovanni Ventura. Now, they were affiliated with Ordine Nuovo, the New Order, which was a neo-fascist paramilitary outfit that was itself an adjunct of Operation Gladio. That's one incident, and you could easily fill an entire podcast series chasing down all the branching threads spreading out from the Piazza Fontana bombing alone. But what I hope it does is gives us a sense of the chaos and the volatile, oppressive atmosphere of the years of lead. Almost every year between 1968 and 1988 featured a number of bizarre, violent incidents like this. And as the paranoia and conspiracies mounted, it didn't take long for people to begin to speculate that the Italian state and shady outside actors like the CIA and NATO were pursuing a deliberate strategy of tension a ramping up of the chaos and instability in order to justify hardline right-wing crackdowns against the Italian left by the state, just like we mentioned with the Brabant killers. Now, remember that the country was seen as a crucial battleground in the Cold War, and my sense from reading accounts by retired CIA and NATO staff is that they viewed Italy's role in Europe, in some respects, the same way they did Vietnam's role in Asia, and that is as a domino whose fall to communism could trigger a regional revolution. The Christian Democracy Party had been in power for 20 years by 1968, and it's kind of difficult to adequately describe their political ideology in the time that we have. 
They worked in coalition with almost every major party in the immediate aftermath of World War II. And while they were ostensibly a centrist party, they had arisen as a socially conservative antidote to fascism. Now, they drew on Catholic teachings and they were generally opposed to Marxist theory and cooperative economic policy and models. But as we've said, pro-communist sentiment was very high in Italy in the 40s and 50s because people weren't forgetting that the communists had made invaluable contributions to the resistance war effort. So the more fanatical free marketeers in the DC had to be neutralized without being alienated, while the DC had to be seen as a viable bulwark against the communists to keep Western states on side. And for an idea of the complexity of Italian politics, the DC had at one time relied on a post-fascist, neo-fascist party for support in the 50s, while beating back the liberal faction's demands for a more austere and right-wing economic agenda. They'd had a lot of help from the American security services in seeing off the threat of the left at the ballot box in the post-war years, but they had also worked closely with the Italian Socialist Party to achieve particular policy goals. By the late 60s, they were mostly a centrist, very, very slightly centre-left coalition, influenced at that time primarily by their more progressive social democratic factions. But have a Google about and you will find all kinds of interesting terms and labels applied to them and their politics. You have neo-popularist, Christian democratic, communitarianist, neo-Calvinist, center-right distributist, Christian corporatist, progressive conservatism. They they were basically a hodgepodge of political tendencies. They were kind of a blob that just absorbed everything. And most of the politicians of the DC were some form of right-leaning and conservative. And more than a few of its politicians were notoriously corrupt. And inevitably, for such a broad party, they were prone to clientelism and factionalism. But a few of them seem to have held very genuine, keenly felt sympathies for the organized workers' movement and the broader left in general. And Aldo Moro was definitely of the latter group. So by the late 1960s, while Sleaze and Graft were sinking deeper and deeper into the fabric of Italian politics and society, Moro was seen as one of the few honest politicians in Italy. He was someone who seemed to have a sincere desire to change the country for the better. His first term as prime minister ran 1963 to 68, and his second occurred between 74 and 76. He also held a number of other positions in government throughout his career, including Minister of Justice and Minister of Foreign Affairs. For a short time, he actually held the latter position while serving his second term as PM. He was instrumental in mediating disputes between the multitude of warring factions in the DC. He also reached out time and again to socialists and communists to help push more progressive policy goals. This is not me trying to create a hagiography of the guy though. Um, Moro, for me, embodies all the hopes and contradictions and tensions of the Republic in the mid-20th century. He was a Christian Democrat who sympathised with the left. He was a Catholic who wanted to make it easier for women to enter the workforce. He was the leader of a centrist coalition who saw no conflict between supporting NATO and wanting communists, socialists and anarchists to have a louder say in the governance of the country. He was an idealist who was hard-headed enough to deftly navigate the bewildering maze of Italian politics. 
he managed to avoid so many of the traps that his enemies set for him for the better part of 30 years. But it's still important to remember that his ideas were shared by very few of the real centers of power in Italy. The financial class, the bankers, the Vatican, and the shadowy state security apparatus. In 1973, a guy called Enrico Berlinguer, who was the general secretary of the Italian Communist Party, which we will be referring to as the PCI from this point forward, he published an open letter to the DC asking for a democratic alliance. Now, Berlinguer was deeply affected by the Chilean coup that September. And he decided that a transition to a socialist society could only be possible if it was taken in incremental steps with the support and protection of a much bigger, more established political party. Bellinger proposed that the PCI would support Christian democracy candidates where the PCI felt doing so was compatible with their own political goals. This would become the basis of the historic compromise a barely believable alliance between the far left and the DC. Eurocommunism became Berlinguer's North Star. Moro was interested, but the DC overwhelmingly opposed the idea, seeing the Italian communists as too influenced by the USSR to be trusted. In 1967, a student called Renato Curcio formed a study group that soon morphed into an alternative curriculum at the University of Trento. Now, Curcio was born of an affair between his mother and Renato Zampa, the brother of the Italian film director Luigi Zampa. And he got his start properly as an activist in the early 60s, drawn to the National Communist Movement and the Young Europe Group. Now, here's where things get a little tricky because, because Young Europe was a syncretic political movement. It blended anti-imperialism, redistributionism and neo-fascist sentiment. It adopted the Celtic cross as its symbol while pushing for pan-European solidarity. And it has since variously been described as Nazi, Maoist and National Bolshevik. Nazbol is what the kids would probably call it these days. Curcio seemed to quickly grow disenchanted with the Nazi part of um, Nazi Maoist. And he submerged himself deeper and deeper in Marxist theory. Young Europe promoted the Leninist style of centralist organizing and the concept of a political military brigade. Curcio took this and ditched the fascism. And by the time he set up his study group at the university, he was evangelical about Maoism, anti-imperialism and anti-capitalism. And after he joined the Italian Communist Party in the late 60s, he quickly established links with Germany's Red Army Faction. Curcio effectively took the opposite journey to Piazza Fontana bombing Franco Freda, who, like Curcio, started out in the ferment of syncretic red-brown politics, but moved deeper and deeper into the fascist underground. Curcio would be further radicalised by the brutal police response to the left in Italy, and after his marriage to fellow activist Margarita Cagol in 1969, he was fully committed to the militant movement. The couple then hooked up with a friend of theirs called Alberto Franceschini, and in 1970, they founded the Red Brigades. The goal was to combine the armed struggle with political activism. The reaction amongst the Italian left was mixed. The Italian Communist Party abided by a kind of omerta. They denied the outfit even existed to pry in cops or spooks or journalists, while other groups like Lotta Continua were sceptical of the long-term viability of direct violent action against the state. 
this first generation of the Red Brigades mostly concerned themselves with supporting workers on strike and union activism, infiltrating factories and engaging in mostly non-violent actions like sabotaging equipment and that kind of thing. The first kidnapping they are known to have committed was of a factory foreman. and They detained him for about half an hour while they took pictures of him wearing a sign they'd made that said, I am a fascist. Then they released him unharmed. But shortly afterwards, they began conducting more overtly violent operations against fascist gangs, which culminated in the first murder officially ascribed to them. They hit two members of the neo-fascist Italian social movement in 1974. Later that year, Curcio and Franceschini were arrested and it turned out that the police had been acting on information supplied to them by a former monk who had been infiltrated into the Red Brigades by the Italian Secret Service. Inevitably, concerns spread amongst the Italian left that the brigades were in fact an op designed to entrap radicals and break the movement. So Curcio was busted out of prison by his wife, Margarita, a couple of months after he was arrested. And it was around this time, 74, 75, that the Red Brigades began to cast about for new income streams as the membership grew bigger and younger and more radicalized. But the increasingly risky operations that they were conducting started to lose them friends and supporters amongst the more moderate communists and labor groups. The police then raided one of their farmhouse bases in 1975 and the ferocious shootout left two cops and Margarita dead and it landed Curcio back in jail for 18 years. This is when the second generation of the Red Brigades emerged and the new leadership oversaw a deeper expansion into arms and drug trafficking, bank jobs, racketeering and money laundering. And they also upped the ante in terms of direct political action committing kidnappings, bombings, and assassinations against prominent judges, cops, and industrialists. Now here we should probably do one of our zoom outs and think about what it means for a bunch of radicalized young people, generally products of the university system or factory workers, to mostly successfully negotiate the Italian underworld during a time when the Sicilian mafia was approaching the height of its heroin wealth and political influence, and the Camorra and Andrangheta weren't far behind, to say nothing of the dozens of other gangs and political groups operating in the same crowded market while they were all being hunted by cops and spooks and rival factions. I mean, on one level, it hints at the level of cynicism because you have the brigades and neo-Nazi gangs trading guns and keys of heroin back and forth one day and then planting bombs in each other's headquarters the next but try to imagine the paranoia and the volatility of that situation. Think about the constant soul searching about whether today might be the day that you finally catch a bullet. Bombs are going off all the time. People are being killed in broad daylight and everything keeps escalating and nothing seems to be slowing down. Now, if you forget to pay off the right cop or judge, you're pretty much done. But then you also have to wonder if the new guy is actually a spook or a fascist infiltrator, or if your friends are starting to suspect that you are. And looming above it all is the right-wing Italian political establishment, backed up by their networks of far-right terror gangs, mobsters, and their friends in MI6, NATO, and the CIA. In 1976, the Communist Party had a very strong showing in the Italian elections, and Moro again raised the prospect of integrating them into the government, 
He called this a national solidarity cabinet with the Italian Socialist Party remaining allied to the DC, but with the government overall supported by the organizing muscle and political support of the Communist Party. The idea was to expand the DC's base of support and dilute the more potent strains of radical Marxist ideology amongst the Italian left. The DC had already done this once before with the Italian Socialist Party, and Moro figured they could do it again with the Communists. And as mentioned, there was widespread opposition to the idea from within and without the DC. The more conservative and liberal factions inside the party hated Moro's idea of a national solidarity cabinet. They viewed the Italian Communist Party as the barely legitimate public face of a rabid and dangerous movement that was threatening to undermine the integrity of the entire state. They figured that if the communists ever got into power, it would transform Italy into a client of the Soviets. Giulio Andriotti, who was an avowed anti-communist and the leader of the DC's conservative wing, wasn't buying the idea of a historic compromise either, although publicly he expressed a lukewarm willingness to give the experiment a try. And he was even brought in as the head of the Solidarity Cabinet, which could count on the indirect campaign support of the communists. As some members of the radical left were suspicious of Moro's overtures, and they saw any compromise with the state as a betrayal of the revolution. The Red Brigades condemned the Communist Party move, and they vowed to escalate the ongoing hostilities against the state. The Communists, in turn, the Communist Party, in turn, denounced the Red Brigades as terrorists. This marked um, yet another step in the breakdown of the relationship between one and the other. The PCI also broke with the USSR in 77 in the hope that this would convince the DC establishment that they were serious about engaging with the Italian political process. Now, while the party grandees remained hostile, traditional DC and socialist voters seemed quite receptive to this coalition idea. And even many parts of the hard left saw possibilities in joining up with this historic compromise. While the violence on the streets intensified and Italy began to experience an economic crisis. In 1977, the Lockheed scandal broke and it turned out that representatives of Lockheed Martin, the US aerospace and defense manufacturer, had been bribing politicians in different Western European countries to win lucrative defense contracts. Now, Moro's political enemies and newspapers that were sympathetic to the DC's right-wing agenda spotted an opportunity and began to openly speculate about whether Moro himself had been taking bribes. And this was transparently an attempt at a character assassination. And Moro was cleared of all wrongdoing in March of 1978. Now, throughout 77, the backlash to Andriotti's austerity measures and the worsening economic situation were putting intense pressure on the cabinet. And it finally imploded in January of 1978. Now, after his exoneration... On March the 3rd, Moro again proposed that the Communist Party take a more direct role in the affairs of state. The opposition to this from the DC, to say nothing of opposition from NATO and the other Anglo security services, can't really be overstated. But the country was facing a legitimate political crisis at this point. So on the 11th of March, Moro mediated a settlement between the PCI and the DC. 
the new cabinet composed of DC politicians would face a confidence vote in parliament and the communist party was expected to offer its direct support. The historic compromise was now a genuine prospect on the day the confidence vote was supposed to take place, the 16th of March, 1978, around nine in the morning, Morrow was kidnapped in Rome by the Red Brigade. Okay, I promised you in-depth, occult, shady shit, and I intend to keep that promise. So let's start with the official account of the kidnapping. So Morrow leaves his house around 10 to 5 to 9 in the morning. He gets into the backseat of a blue Fiat 130 with two Carabinieri bodyguards riding up front. Three more bodyguards in a white Alfetta tail car fall in behind them as they set off. The cars enter a street called Via Mario Fani. When they're a little way down the street, a Red Brigade's lookout waves a bouquet of flowers signaling to the ambush team. Four Alphas with fake diplomatic license plates blocking the Alpha 130 and the Alfetta, and another four crew members disguised in airline crew uniforms from Alitalia step into the road. They fire 91 bullets from FNAB 43 and Beretta M12 submachine guns, and 45 of the bullets find the mark. This is almost military precision work here, guys. Uh, the two cops in Morrow's car are killed instantly, and the rest of the guard detail is taken out in short order, with only one of them getting the chance to actually draw his gun and fire two bullets in return before being shot in the head by one of the kidnappers. Morrow is bundled into a Fiat 132 and the car takes off and it's later found ditched on a street called Via Licino Calvo around 9.45 with some bloodstains on the back seat and the rest of the cars are found on the same street shortly afterwards. The entire assault takes just under three minutes and within an hour the Red Brigades contact the Italian wire service, answer and claim responsibility. The general response is about what you'd expect. There's shock, there's anger, there's disbelief. The Italian left was split. The more militant groups applauded the move and there are stories of radicals popping up in champagne and toasting the Red Brigades while on the picket lines. Other leftists were concerned about the political blowback if Morrow was harmed and a few communist trade unions organized strikes in protest at the kidnapping. Now, although the PCI had supplied the confidence votes necessary for Andriotti's cabinet before the news of the kidnapping broke, Andriotti was soon shrugging off any chances of the historic compromise actually happening, and the PCI were barred from participating in any further cabinets. Instead, Andriotti shifted his cabinet back towards the centre-right, emphasis on the right, and a crackdown against the left began. Now, from the outset, plenty of people couldn't help but notice how fucking convenient the kidnapping and the circumstances surrounding it appeared to be. 
Moro, the peacemaker, looking to build a bridge between a moribund and corrupt political establishment and an insurgent, vibrant left-wing movement ambushed and spirited away on the very morning that he was supposed to be mediating the final negotiations between the two camps. Untrained radicals who managed to neatly and efficiently take out five carabinieri in broad daylight with submachine guns. And then the subsequent investigations where police lose evidence, don't follow up key witnesses or bother to stick tails on suspects and repeatedly wind up arresting completely innocent left-wing activists and trade unionists, often detaining them for hours at a time without charge. On the political front, two crisis committees were formed on the day of the kidnapping and a third, more informal one, was formed shortly afterwards. And they were composed of politicians, military, law enforcement and intelligence agency officers. As the DC circled the wagons and refused to negotiate with the terrorists, the Red Brigades began to issue demands in a series of communications. These would become another point of contention as the investigators and media dug deeper into the case. The official consensus now is that the Red Brigades kidnapped Morrow with the intent of alienating the left, and particularly the PCI, from the Italian state. In this version, the Red Brigades felt that they were going to play the key role in the coming revolution, and they saw the historic compromise as a way for the state to incorporate and diffuse any potential insurrection. I mean, as we've mentioned, this is plausible because it certainly was a motivating factor in Moro's thinking. But whether or not the Red Brigades really had any kind of pivotal part to play in a future revolution is a different question entirely. Regardless, it didn't take long for the Red Brigade's communications to roll back from the more grandiose stuff and shift down to demanding more standard political concessions like the release of imprisoned revolutionaries. They also alluded to interrogations that they were conducting of Moro, and they implied that he was revealing explosive state secrets. Now, nine of these communications are confirmed as legitimate. A few more turned out to be the work of a mobster called Antonio Cicciarelli, who was affiliated with the Banda della Magliana gang. And this crew more or less ran Rome's underworld during this period, and they were on very good terms with the much bigger Sicilian and Calabrian mafias. They were also involved with Italian far-right paramilitaries, and we'll circle back to this in a little bit. And one of Cicciarelli's fake notes directed the police to search for Moro's body at the bottom of a frozen lake to the north of Rome, which the police did without finding anything, but it helped divert the investigation for a while. For his part, Moro wrote dozens of letters to his family, to his colleagues, and even to the Pope, um, Paul VI. In some, he reassured people that he was in good health and being treated well. Others seemed more desperate, and the Red Brigade's kidnappers who were eventually arrested would later say he was particularly angry about the Pope making a public statement in April where he demanded Moro's unconditional release. And an emphasis here is on the unconditional because this was echoing the DC line and it seemed to strike Morrow as proof that he'd been abandoned by the state. Apparently, the Pope privately said that the unconditional line was something that representatives from the DC had pressured him into saying. And the Italian public looked at how shady and obtuse the DC 
and the police were being throughout the kidnapping and inevitably began to suspect that something much stranger than the official narrative was happening. In fact, two years on from the kidnapping, an Italian journalist called Luca Villaresi in an article for La Repubblica claimed that the Italian Secret Service had known exactly where in Rome Moro was being held by the Red Brigades throughout March and April of 1978, a Red Brigade safe house on Via Montalcini. They'd even had a surveillance detail, complete with a van carrying state-of-the-art wiretap and camera equipment sitting on the safe house on the day of the kidnapping, yet they'd apparently seen or heard nothing unusual, and for the 55 days of Morrow's detention, the police and military claimed to have found no trace of his whereabouts. As if this wasn't enough, Italian secret service agents owned or rented apartments in the very same building, and the telegrams that the Red Brigades were sending out were printed using Italian civil service printing machines. The famous Venezuelan Marxist-Leninist guerrilla Carlos the Jackal also claims that he had direct contact with the Red Brigades and the Italian security services during this time, acting as a mediator in a negotiation that would have seen Moro released in exchange for Palestinian political prisoners being freed. Here's an especially weird detail. A couple of weeks after the kidnapping, uh, in mid-April, Romano Prodi, a future president of the European Commission and Italian Prime Minister, held a seance with some friends of his from the University of Bologna. Supposedly, whatever they summoned at this seance with the Ouija board spelled out the word gradioli, and the police took this as their cue to pretty much ransack um, the Italian town of the same name, but they came away disappointed. When news of this spread, uh, people were basically aghast at how insane this was becoming, but they were also quick to suggest, like, what the fuck, since you're already acting on, like, literal underworld tip-offs, why didn't you think to check the street via Gradioli, which was in Rome? And it later emerged that the Red Brigades actually did have a safe house that the security services had also placed under surveillance on this street. Now, a few years later, mother of all shocks, it turned out that Prodi probably made up the seance story to conceal the real source of the tip-off, which was likely a rival left-wing faction of the Red Brigades. Giulio Andriotti and his associates, the Lima brothers, became a focus of increasing scrutiny as the situation dragged on. Indro Montanelli, a historian and journalist, believes that Andriotti was concerned that Morrow being freed would have conferred a sort of hero's light on him and that public sympathy would strengthen support for the historic compromise. The police searches and arrests looked spectacular, but they achieved so little that many Italians suspected that they were purely for sure. Andriotti continued to straight up dismiss all calls for negotiation. It seems as if he decided it was in the interests of the DC for Moro to stay gone. Now, immediately after the kidnapping, a muckraking journalist called Carmine Pecorelli revealed some very interesting tidbits that he skimmed from his informers in the police and security services. For one thing, the police did eventually make it to the safe house on Via Gradioli, but if Morrow had ever been held there, he was long gone by the time the cops kicked down the door. 
off the record, though, a number of them told Pecorelli that the apartment seemed rigged to implicate the Red Brigades for an underground terrorist group that wanted to keep a low profile. They'd sure left a lot of Red Brigades flags and pamphlets and machine guns lying around the place, which seemed pretty sloppy and didn't really fit the police's profile of the Red Brigades as being quite a professional, efficient outfit. In the days following the abduction, Pecorelli continued to spill dirt in his magazine, Osservatorio Politico, and he dropped another tip-off from a supposedly well-placed source that suggested that both the CIA and the KGB had deemed it mutually beneficial for Morrow to disappear. They felt an alliance between the DC and the PCI had to be sabotaged at all costs. The CIA, for reasons already mentioned, and the KGB because they didn't want a communist party independent of Moscow to make it into power in a major Western democracy. And to this end, the KGB had supposedly tapped up a guy called Igor Markovich, who was a Russian composer and a former partisan fighter who had some influence over the leadership of the Red Brigades. And the Russian spooks supposedly asked him to offer strategic and material support to the Red Brigade's kidnap team. Apparently, Pecorelli also had a dossier directly implicating key figures in the DC and shady power brokers in Italy's wealthy elite, along with gangsters from Cosa Nostra and the Andrangheta. He also implied that intelligence agents and cops had infiltrated people into the Red Brigades to ensure the investigation would go nowhere. And Giovanni Galloni, the former vice secretary of the DC, corroborates much of this and still maintains that Morrow had once confidentially told him that American, British and Israeli intelligence agencies had been planting spooks into the Red Brigades and other radical groups for years. Pecorelli promised more exposés and bombshell revelations, and there were plenty of people who were sceptical of his claims at the time, but even they had to think again when he was shot dead outside his apartment on the 20th of March. Years later, the famous Costa Nostra pentito Tommaso Bruschetta would tell anti-mafia prosecutors that the Lima brothers had commissioned the hit on behalf of Giulio Andriotti, who in turn ordered the killing both to protect himself and to protect Propaganda Due and its connections to foreign intelligence agencies. Andriotti would be tried for ordering the murder and acquitted. He would be tried again and convicted, which he appealed until it finally expired under Italy's Statute of Limitations in 2004. Steve Pajnik was a hostage negotiator and counter-terrorism expert he was dispatched to Rome shortly after the kidnapping by the US State Department to mediate between the Italian government and the Red Brigades. Here's his later summary of the situation. Quote, The Italian right wanted the death of Moro. The Red Brigades wanted him alive. Numerous forces in the country had radically different programs. I felt we should avoid the communists entering government and, at the same time, we should suppress any harmful capability of the reactionary and anti-democratic forces. It was desirable that Morrow's family did not start a parallel negotiation, averting the risk that he could be released too soon. But I recognise that, 
pushing my strategy to its extreme consequences, I should perhaps sacrifice the hostage for the stability of Italy. Pieznik has always denied being CIA, but he does claim that he helped push along the decision to abandon Moro in covert communications with Italian state figures and various underground groups in order to delegitimize the hard left. He cut his trip short to make it seem like the US had played no role in the outcome of the crisis. And reflecting on his time in Italy a few years later, he expressed his surprise at the sheer number of fascists, neo-Nazis, Freemasons, mobsters, and double and triple intelligence agents operating at all levels of the Italian state and acting as spies and assets for different outside interests and various paramilitary groups. As an interesting footnote, Steve can be found now on YouTube where he talks about how uh, coronavirus is a myth, uh, you know, not as dangerous as people make it out to be. Uh, there's another video where he uh, goes deep on the lost cause myth of the US Civil War. He seems quite fond of that one. Um, he also argues that there is a, a long-standing connection between the Clinton family and pedophilia, which I'm actually sympathetic to that argument. And he also co-authored two uh, bestsellers with Tom Clancy, um, Tom Clancy's Net Force and Tom Clancy's Op Center. I did tell you that this episode was going to go to some pretty weird places. So let's talk about the role of Gladio in the kidnapping because it has been the subject of a lot of speculation. And for me, this is such a complex and confusing case that I couldn't tell you if the entire kidnapping and murder was just one big Gladio smoke show or not. Plenty of people affiliated to the operation were definitely involved in the Moro affair. The Banda della Magliana, the mafia-type organization that we mentioned earlier, allegedly had several members and informers planted inside the Red Brigades. The syndicate also maintained very good business ties to numerous neo-fascist paramilitary groups, in particular the armed revolutionary nuclei, with whom they operated a very profitable arms and drug trafficking operation. Now, we mentioned at the top of the show that the ARN were responsible for the Bologna train station bombing, which was commissioned by Lucio Gelli, who was, in turn, friendly with the Vatican and a member of Propaganda Due, and therefore intimately involved with Operation Gladio. A high-ranking officer in the 7th Division of the Italian Security Service SISMI was spotted by several witnesses lurking near the scene of the kidnapping while it happened and his later explanation that he was in the area to meet a friend for lunch didn't convince many people considering that it was nine in the morning across town again at the same time at the hotel excelsior the senior leadership of the p2 lodge met in a private function room where licio jelly was heard saying the most difficult part of the job is done he is no longer a problem and this was supposedly in reference to Moro. And finally, the cop leading the Rome police's response to the crisis also turned out to be a member of P2. The Banda della Magliana were allegedly contacted by members of the Calabrian Andrangheta in late March or early April of 1978 
and told to locate where the Red Brigades were holding Moro. The Andrangata reps were supposedly doing this as a favor to some Calabrian DC politicians. Tommaso Buscetta confirmed that elements of the DC were soliciting the help of organized crime figures during the Moro affair. He also went on to say that Sicilian-based DC politicians had asked Cosa Nostra bosses to start their own search for Moro in coordination with the Calabrian organization. Now, whatever the case, Buscetta also said that it didn't take long for the orders to change and both the Calabrian and Sicilian organizations to call off the search, again, supposedly at the behest of state figures. So what are we to make of this? My feeling is that it shows us just how confusing and bewildering the thinking in the Italian deep state was with so many factions running off and doing their own thing throughout Moro's detention. Maybe the kidnapping was some kind of inside job, so, so to speak, but different elements had different ideas about how things should play out. One Carabinieri officer, Carlo della Chiesa, had spent years investigating left and right-wing terrorism and throughout the Moro affair, he was convinced that much bigger forces were at play than the official narrative in the media was admitting. He dug deep into much of the stuff that we've discussed so far, and the Italian government subsequently reassigned him to Sicily at the height of the Second Mafia War of the early 80s. Even while he was overseeing a police response to the most violent mafia conflict of the 20th century, he still kept digging into the Aldo Moro affair. And he and his wife were eventually ambushed and shot dead in Palermo by Pino Greco in 1982 on the orders of the Corleone family. It goes without saying that his colleagues and friends believe the state commissioned his murder to keep him quiet. The final official communication from the Red Brigades reads as follows, quote, for what concerns our proposal of an exchange of political prisoners in order to release Aldo Moro, we can only record the clear refusal from the DC. We thus conclude the battle begun on the 16th of March, executing the sentence to which Aldo Moro has been condemned. On the 9th of May, 1978, Aldo Moro's body was found riddled with bullets and stuffed into the boot of a Renault on a street that was exactly halfway between the headquarters of the DC and the headquarters of the Italian Communist Party. reaction to the discovery of Morrow's body was one of grief, sure, but also overwhelming disbelief and bitterness. It's a phrase that gets overused a lot, but this really was a JFK moment for Italians. In the heart of a modern metropolitan Western democracy, the government and security services had completely failed to protect one of the only politicians who could plausibly unite a country living through such a violent period of history. 
The killing finally ended any chance of the historic compromise happening. And the DC, while still a major player in Italian politics, went into a permanent decline as it was hit by one corruption scandal after another throughout the 80s and early 90s and experienced a permanent loss of trust amongst large numbers of the Italian public. We're going to be discussing more of this in episodes to come, so bear in mind that from here on out, the DC is a power in decline. There are so many unanswered questions and other lines of inquiry we don't really have time to get into it all, but suffice to say that there's still intense disagreement about what the motivation for the kidnapping and murder really was, despite the official narrative. There's even doubt about how many people actually took part in the assault on Viafani, who they were, and if there were more professional criminals or even military trained marksmen involved in the assault itself. The surgical precision of the attack has always been a point of contention. None of the Red Brigade's ambush team, officially named, had any particular training in the use of automatic weapons prior to the assault, beyond taking pot shots at homemade targets. Ten Red Brigade's members were named as participants in the kidnapping. Two of them fled Italy to Nicaragua and Cairo, and the rest were given lengthy prison sentences ranging from 20 years to life, except for Adriana Ferranda, who cut a deal with the prosecution. The years of lead ground on throughout the 80s with bombings and assassinations continuing. The Red Brigades also carried out several more hits before announcing the end of their war on the state in 1988 after the killing of Senator Roberto Ruffilli. In the years after the end of the Cold War, it did seem as if they had permanently deactivated until a group calling themselves the New Red Brigades killed the Minister of Labour in 1999, a ministerial consultant in 2002, and a cop in 2003. Almost all of the remaining leadership of this incarnation of the outfit was captured in 2005. Renato Curcio is today a sociologist and author, and while he never really denounced his involvement in the struggle, he has been outspoken and highly critical of the direction that the organisation took after his imprisonment in the mid-70s. The day of Aldo Moro's murder is now a day of mourning for all the victims of the years of lead in Italy. There is still no single account of the case that satisfies all the unanswered questions. Uh, Ferdinando Imposimato, the honorary president of the Supreme Court of Italy, maintains that while the Red Brigades carried out the job, they were really acting on behalf of Giulio Andriotti and the network of powerful individuals behind him. Luca Villaresi, the journalist that we mentioned earlier, sums it up like this. The Moro affair has produced nothing but lies and false leads. I don't think it's possible anymore to find out what really happened. Certainly, there are people who know the truth but we will never know if they are telling us the truth. As a footnote to all of this, the church has been considering canonizing Aldo Moro for a number of years now. So that's the years of lead, or at least a part of the years of lead, and that is the kidnapping of Aldo Moro and his eventual death. Um, that about wraps it up for this one. Um, oh, I almost forgot to mention, actually, um, 
I do have a book recommendation for you if you've made it this far and you want to keep the paranoid, dark vibes going. Um, the book is called The 20 Days of Turin. It's by a guy called Giorgio Di Maria. And it came out, I think, in 74 or 75. I think 70. Yes, yeah, 75, I think. Uh, so basically, it, it was right in the middle of the years of lead when this book came out. And while it, it only really references the period obliquely, but the oppressive kind of ominous atmosphere of the time absolutely soaks through every single page. Like he was definitely channeling the forces that were in the air at that time. Um, it's set at some point in a, an unnamed sort of near future. And it follows a unnamed journalist investigating a series of bizarre unsolved murders that happened in Turin years before. Um, there's also a group of strange people who set up something called the library where the public can go to anonymously write down their like darkest, most depraved thoughts for public consumption. And there's also an insomnia epidemic as well and statues and architecture that mysteriously change position when people aren't looking. Um, I really cannot recommend it enough and I really urge you to find it, seek it out ASAP. Yeah, you will not regret it. It's such a good book. Um, and also, interestingly, the library. This guy was writing this in 1975 and he pretty much predicted uh, social media. I mean, the library is basically Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Um, anyway, next episode, we will be looking at the three main mafia organizations in Italy. And we'll be looking at the history of them as well, which requires us to kind of break our rule about only being a post-war history podcast because we'll need to step way back to the 18th and 19th centuries and have a look at what a shadow state is in theory and in practice. So I hope you will join us for that. I hope you forgive us for the long layoff. And please remember to spread the word that we are back now. Um, like and subscribe on iTunes or whatever. Um, don't get captured. And thanks for listening. Cheers, guys. Here comes a roly-poly man and he's singing songs of love. Roly-poly, roly-poly, roly-poly.